This talk's gonna be a little different um, than some of the other ones we've done. Uh, it's basically just gonna be about words. Um, like, literally. Um, I'm, I'm a word nerd. I like words. I like etymology. I used to teach classical languages in Hastings. Um, but I'm not going to be doing that kind of stuff necessarily. More like, as we've kind of worked our way down, kind of picture it, you know, as we've been progressing. You know, we talked about, you know, the big story. We talked about things like uh, getting the right context and the right form. Um, we talked about meditating uh, in the last talk. And one of the ways of meditating was to kind of walk our way through and let the words hit us in different ways. So what, what I want to do, and I will not lie, I've never given a talk quite like this before, but I want to hit on different words that the Bible uses that sometimes we assume we know what they mean, or we assume because it means this over here, it has to mean this over here, um, or we just miss, miss some of the richness that might be there by allowing some other meanings to, to come up. Um, so... This, this is, think of this more as me giving reflection rather than correction. I'm not necessarily trying to correct a, a, a bad idea. In most cases, we said, you know, as long as you're not in this heresy or that heresy, everything else in the middle is probably pretty good, right? Um, so, but it's more like just helping us appreciate more of, of, of what's already in there. So, uh, first I'm going to start with Jesus' words. Uh, first of all, Christ. Um, I think this is one that we have a whole ocean depth of richness that we can get to, um, not only from the word itself, but from all the things we've talked about, about understanding, you know, the Jewish expectations and stuff like that. If we remind ourselves that Christ, first of all, is not Jesus' last name, right? His parents were not Joseph and Mary Christ, right? Um, and so they just reminded us that, that it's a title. And in some sense, we can kind of blame St. Paul for this, um, but not really. I think Paul wrote it exactly the way he meant it. I think we, reading St. Paul and seeing him talk about the Christ, Christ this, Christ that, through Christ our Lord, again and again and again, you know, we then begin to read that. And the Catholic Church over 2,000 years uses it that way. I mean, it's, it's interesting for me, you know, reading the prayers, you know, and the prayers I read at Mass are different than how I write and talk about Jesus. Um, more on that in a little bit. But the, so the church even, you know, will, will use Christ as like a second name, pseudonym, uh, alternative things. You know, when you're a preacher and you've said Jesus 50 times, throw in Christ every once in a while, you know, so like that. But, but it helps us to remember that Christ means Christos, and Christ means Messiah, John's gospel tells us at the very beginning. He talks about, you know, um, he is the Messiah, which is translated Christos. Um, our chrism mass, we take and make chrism. You take oil, olive oil, and it becomes chrism by the bishop blessing it. And really the word chrism is just the general word for oil. It, it doesn't have to be blessed. Christ, the Christos, is one who's anointed with oil or poured over the top, right? If you pour chrism on someone, they are now Christos. They have been you know, anointed. Um, and it helps us to remember that when you see that word, um, especially when Paul's using it, maybe even force yourself to say, the Messiah, the Messiah, the Messiah. That's one of the things I like about N.T. Wright, is that he always translates it into the Hebrew. Not because the two words mean something different, but it reminds us what he's talking about. When he says Jesus the Messiah, that helps you remember that Jewish context and reminds you that it's a specific role, that this one has been promised, and this Jesus guy from Nazareth came and did it. He came and fulfilled it. Now, what's tricky is the, actually the opposite. 
when you read the Old Testament in most Bible translations, you come across, it just says, the anointed, his anointed, and sometimes anointed can, can even seem to be plural, because different people can be anointed, right? In the Old Testament, priests and prophets and kings are anointed at different times. P.S., that's why at baptism, you are anointed a priest, a prophet, and a king. Jesus is the priest, prophet, and king. He replaces all of them. He's the anointed. So it's tricky. You've got to figure out, do we mean this in the general sense, or are we talking about, like, the anointed who is to come? How do we mean that? But I think that brings things to life. I think when we force ourselves to think in that way, it gives us, again, that, that rootedness in the, in the Jewish expectation. It's important to remind ourselves that, like, I mean, he just was not what they expected. He was at first. When he shows up preaching, you know, they're like, ooh, you know, he's got authority, Right, and we tend to hear that in an English way, as if like he speaks with authority. Right, um, you know, he 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 comes off as knowing what he's talking about, but they didn't mean that. What they meant is he does the prophet thing of telling us stuff in the in the synagogue, but he can do crazy things like cast out demons and heal sick people. Right, and so he's saying it's a new teaching with authority. And that's what they're saying there. And they're like, whoa, because that would be a really good marker that this dude might be your Messiah. You got to remember, they had been looking for the Messiah because they're closing in on that 490 years. And so they're on the lookout. And that's why they keep on following after any like jumped up would be rebel. As we heard uh, Pope Benedict talk about um, Barabbas, right? The, the, the revolutionary, he said, you know, they've been looking all around for revolutionaries who's going to throw off Rome. And they go even to the year 130 AD, still thinking, here's our chance. So they are looking, and remember, after he feeds the 5,000, they are ready to carry him off and make him king. John 6 tells us that. And it's almost like Jesus, Frank Sheed says this, it's almost like Jesus purposely decided that was the moment to hit them with the bread of life discourse, not just because they need to hear the truth, but literally to make them walk away. Frank Sheed, I think he's got a point here. His hypothesis is that literally Jesus does not want them to follow him. So he throws them his hardest curveball purposely to make them be like, whoa, that's a hard saying, and walk away. And that's a fascinating thing to think about. But he sees they're not getting it. They're doing it the wrong way. And it's interesting. John's gospel doesn't have the direct prediction of the passions the synoptics have. And the synoptics don't have the bread of life discourse. But they both do it at exactly the same time, immediately before the transfiguration. And so in, in both cases, you have this moment where Jesus has everybody eat out of his hands and he throws them something crazy. John, you can eat my flesh. With the other three... The Messiah must go to Jerusalem, be rejected by the chief priests, and be crucified and rise. And in both cases, it's like this agreed moment where they're like, okay, fine, trying to find a new guy. You're clearly not sane, let alone the Messiah, right? And, and, and again, as I mentioned as kind of a, um, a preview in, the, in one of the earlier talks, you know, the thing the Messiah doesn't do is lose, Jesus dying on the cross to the Romans, to the pagans, rejected by his own chief priests, rejected by his own people. They cheered against him, and he didn't even fight back, let alone win, right? Clearly, he's not the Messiah. So what is Easter Sunday? It's God overturning the verdict. He says, ha-ha, wrong. He is the Messiah, and here's the proof, right? You know, so, at, I mean, there's a thousand other things Easter Sunday is also, but remember that, that, like, that is God overturning the verdict and saying, no, I vindicate my anointed, as we'd expect from Messianic Psalms like Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, 
more on 110 in a little bit. But those are two of our, our, our biggest uh, places where we see the, the Messiah. Okay, that's Christ. Lord. This one's tricky. Lord changes so often. Part of it is the language changes. As you probably know, in Hebrew, the name of God which even I can't say because we don't really know how to pronounce it. We tend to say Yahweh. You know, we just have consonants, Y-H-W-H, the sacred name of God, that they didn't say that. And that's why we don't really even know how it's said. The problem is that it gets translated as Adonai. Well, sorry, let's rephrase that. When a Jewish person is reading the scriptures and he sees the sacred name, which pops up 6,003 times exactly, um, when he sees that, he knows don't say that word. Instead, you say Adonai, which means Lord in the sense of the boss, the nobleman, the duke, the guy in charge, sir. Some of you might have seen the funny thing where uh, Google Translate translates Kyrie eleison to uh, sir, please calm down, uh, which is great. <laughs> you imagine us, you imagine us at the beginning of Mass, you know, after we've confessed, you know, through my grievous fault, sir, please calm down, Christ, please calm down, sir, please calm down. Uh, <laughs> it's just awesome. Um, but that is what modern Greek would come up with. Um, yeah, so, but that Lord changes because then when it hits Greek, they translate them all as Kyrie or Kyrios. And so you lose that. In, your new, in, in most of your Old Testaments, they will use that weird sh- um, small caps, you know what I'm talking about? Where they write Lord and it's capital letters, but it's like scrunchy. Um, and, and you'll see that. I'm trying to see uh, if this New American Bible does it. Um, great place to look is the Psalms. I should have. Yes, okay. So if you have a New American Bible, it'll do it. And if you look at Psalm 110, that's a great place to see how this works. Psalm 110, one of the big messianic psalms. You do it every single Sunday of the year at evening prayer at Vespers. We won't be here for Vespers tomorrow, but it's a great place to see it. So look at Psalm 110. This, by the way, is the psalm that Jesus will look at when he's trying to help the people understand how he can be David's son, but also be above David. So Psalm 110, look what it says. The Lord says to you, my Lord. This is one of the rare cases where in the same line, it's got the short caps and then just a lowercase Lord. So what that means is the Hebrew said, Yahweh said to you, my master. And in fact, the psalm edition that's in the breviary in English says, the Lord said to my master, sit at my right. Your foes I will put beneath your feet. It's interesting. This psalm is actually one that when they were first trying to explain the Trinity, they looked at because they said there's three speakers in this psalm. One is the Holy Spirit guiding the guy writing the psalm, the kind of third person narrator talking about it. God the Father is the short caps Yahweh, Lord. So the speaker saying, Yahweh God says to my boss, my master, which is the Messiah. So they saw in this psalm all three, the Holy Spirit speaking through the narrator, God the Father as Yahweh, but then my master is the Messiah. So that's just a fun little fact there, but it goes to show that you kind of have to be watching when we see different things. We get to the New Testament, that all gets tricky, because in the New Testament, it's all in Greek, right? It's all Greek to me. Right, Julius Caesar. Um, but they, they, in that moment, that kind of gets lost because you're like, which Lord is he talking about? 
right? When Paul calls him Lord, is he calling him Yahweh? Is he calling him my master? Is he calling him the Messiah? Because Messiah would definitely take on the sense of master. And then, and this will go into our next little point, or is he talking about the Lord of this world? Paul seems to be sometimes intentionally thumbing his nose at Caesar, purposely going at him. And we'll see this in a couple of these things where he seems to be saying, the Lord of this world, a.k.a. Julius Caesar or Augustus Caesar or Tiberius Caesar, depending on when you're living, promises you peace, promises you prosperity, promises you salvation. That word doesn't always just mean getting to heaven. Promises to take care of you. Promises that he and he alone can protect this. He Come to him, bow to him, kneel to him, and he'll take care of you. Throw yourself at Rome's feet and Rome will take care of you. And Paul is, at certain times, very directly calling that out and being subversive in saying, he is not the Lord of the world. We know who the Lord of the world is. He's about 10 feet to my left, right? And, and he's saying that when he does that purposely, sometimes he's purposely trying to show the real Lord of the world, the true king of glory, isn't Caesar, it's Jesus. Jesus can actually give you peace, salvation, protection, prosperity. O Lord, grant salvation. O Lord, grant success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118, which we talked about the other night. So, there, so you kind of, you have to almost, you know when you go to the eye doctor and it keeps on doing the little twisty thing? One or two, three or four. That's kind of how you have to read the scriptures at times. How do I read it if I read it this way? Change the lens. Look at it from a slightly different angle. Does it come out any different? And the goal isn't always to find out what did Paul mean, because Paul might mean all of it, because he's that guy, right? He might purposely be loading four layers of meaning. But for you to get a different thing out, is there something different when you hit that word there? Because it can mean different stuff. Let's take another one that connects with this. Son of God. We're Catholics. We say the Nicene Creed every Sunday. We're formed by our creed, right? God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father, right? That's what makes us Orthodox Christians, right? And so when every time we hear Son of God, our first thought is always second person of Trinity, the Word of God, Jesus in his divinity. But Son of God can mean a lot of different things. And this doesn't take away, this doesn't take away the fact that Nicaea was right and Jesus is divine, consubstantial with the Father. But Son of God is oftentimes in the New Testament mean, means a term for the Messiah. The Messiah would be understood to be the Son of God, even though the average Jewish person didn't think that means Yahweh in the flesh. And so that's a thing that, that has to be um, you know, conveyed in, in different ways to the, to the people. Today's um, thing where we looked at Nathaniel, he says, you are the, you are the son of David, you are, um, what was it? What was the line? The thing about you're the son of David, you're, you're um, the son of God. He probably means you're the Messiah. He, he would have no reason to announce the guy that he just met. Even Peter, it's Caesarea Philippi, Matthew 16, 18, when he says, who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It's more likely that Peter at that moment is thinking, you're the Messiah, because he just said you're the Christ, rather than saying you're the Christ and you're divine. That doesn't take away his divinity, but it helps us understand what people are saying. Also recognize that sometimes people say son of God, they mean that as someone like an angel, especially in the Old Testament. 
right? So when the three young men are thrown into the furnace, right? We talked about the other night, and they're, you know, survive that. And Nebuchadnezzar comes and says, I thought we threw three in. There's a fourth, and he looks like a son of God. Oftentimes we interpret that. I mean, I literally, my picture Bible literally shows Jesus in the fire with the other three, right? And that could be true. I don't know. But I don't think that's what Daniel is thinking when he's writing that. Because he would have no reason to think that. More likely, there's an angel protecting them in the fire. But here's the other thing. In addition to meaning divine, you know, God-man and Messiah and possibly angel or any other special representative, it's also a phrase that Caesar uses for himself. Very common after Caesar Augustus was the idea of naming your dad after he died a god in the Roman pantheon. And so that, like, starting with Augustus, the heir of Julius, he's the son of God. Tiberius, son of God. So again, when you see Paul using it, he might be very much saying, nope, there's something different going on here. And your idea of son of God can't do anything like what our son of God can do. With that, then just to wrap up the the Jesus ones, just the word Jesus... Don't worry, there's no change on this one. But think about how you use it. I encourage you to think about how you want to talk to him. If you go through St. Therese's entire story of a soul, you will find that she never, ever, ever calls him anything but Jesus. She never calls him Christ. She never calls him Lord. She literally only ever calls him Jesus. I remember finding that. I think that was kind of a fascinating little fact. But then when I found myself, you know, reflecting on the idea that Christ needs to mean a title like Messiah. It's like, I think not only is she showing her affection for Jesus as a person, she's getting it very clear. I'm talking to the person. The person is Jesus. Christ means his job. And I think that gives her an extra layer of, of um, intimacy in there. And I think for us, it also gives an extra layer of, of correctness. When you're talking to him, he's Jesus. He is the Christ. But let's make sure that doesn't just become a second name. And that's part of the problem with the Yahweh Lord thing also, is that you lose the ability to have a way to say, the God of the Old Testament is the Lord, meaning he's the boss. And in fact, in, in Exodus 15, they have that problem. The, the translation of the breviary says, um, the Lord is a warrior, Lord is his name, which makes no sense grammatically, right? The Lord is a warrior, Lord is his name, because they're trying to make Lord do the work of Yahweh. The actual um, the translation is Yahweh is a warrior. Yah is his name. That's what the Hebrew says. Um, I could go off on that, but I'm, I'm choosing to not. I, I keep on wanting to do more stuff. Um, so, but that's an interesting little thing. Like, Lord is a title. Messiah is a title. Yahweh is the name. Jesus is the name. That can actually be a pretty cool thing to let soak in and use from time to time. And if you find yourself needing to get more intimate with Jesus... Make yourself only call him Jesus. Refuse to use any other title. See what that does to you. I think you'll find it actually changes your prayer a little bit. Kingdom of heaven. Important. You might have heard this before, but it's important. The kingdom of heaven is not heaven. The kingdom of heaven is not heaven. It's clear when Mark will say the kingdom of God, and Luke will do the same. But Matthew uses this phrase kingdom of heaven instead, and we all instinctively think, oh, heaven. Right? I die and I go to heaven. My goal is to get to heaven. But that's not what kingdom of heaven means. In fact, if you go through Matthew's own parables and says the kingdom of heaven is like this, it can't be heaven. 
right? He compares it to a field where there's good seed sown and then bad seed sown. And he says the weeds grow up with the wheat at the same time, and only at the end will we cut them, first taking out the bad and then taking the good to protect it at the end of the age. What is the kingdom of heaven? It's the church. It's the kingdom that Jesus came to bring on earth, and that goes perfectly along with what, what guys like N.T. Wright and Pope Benedict were saying earlier today, that like Jesus came to inaugurate the kingdom. There's a sense the kingdom is still to come, right? You know, the, the classic phrase is Jesus inaugurated the kingdom, but it's not fully implemented. That's our job, is each one of us helps implement the kingdom. So, that you, so that that's the goal to bring that about. What do we say? You know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. All three of those. It's a, it's a continuous phrase. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Hallowed be thy name on earth as it is in heaven. That's what you're actually saying grammatically in that sentence. So when we say that, we're saying, as your kingdom is in heaven, do it here. As your name's hallowed in heaven, do it here. As your will is constantly done perfectly in heaven, do it here. And I want to help. That's what you're saying when you say the Our Father. You see, you're, it's, it's subjunctive. You're like, may it be, may it be may it be. I'm trying to, to bring about your kingdom here, Jesus. So kingdom of heaven, when you hear that, it's what Wright was saying at dinner time. We're trying to break the kingdom more and more into the world. The two are going to overlap. It's not there's a world and a kingdom of heaven or a world and heaven. The whole goal of Jesus, why Jesus came, was to bring heaven into earth and start heavenizing the worldly plane. That's the goal. Okay. Um, Satan. You might already know this. Satan means the accuser. It was a specific job in the court. It was basically um, the, the prosecutor, the lawyer for the, uh, for the, the prosecution. Um, it shows up in Job. You might remember the beginning of Job. God is in his throne room. All the angels are hanging out. The sons of God, they're called, right? And in comes this wanderer, the Satan. And he says, what do you want here? And he's like, I'm here to accuse Job, right? He's coming to, to make cause against him. We see a pop-up again in the book of Revelation where it says, the accuser of our brothers has been cast out. That's what the Satan or the, or the Shatan is. He's the accuser. There's a counterpoint to this. The opposite of the accuser is the paracletus, literally the one you call upon, the paraclete. So when Jesus at the Last Supper says, I'm going away, but it's better for you because when I go, I will send the paraclete. I will send the Holy Spirit. We sometimes translate it, I will send you the advocate in the legal sense, the abogada, the, 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 the legal advocate who is your defense in the trial. So yes, the Satan will try and accuse you and tear you down, but on the other hand, you've got the Holy Spirit to defend you. He is your guide in all this. Other names for him, you know, devil, diabolos, to split. So he's an accuser, he's a divider, but we know that he likes to masquerade as an angel of light. His original name, Lucifer, means the light bearer. And, like, that's literally even the name given at different times. It's weird. Lucifer is used three different times in Christian thinking. Once for Jesus, once for Mary, multiple times for the devil. Totally weird and confusing. But the reason for that is because they meant, when they say the light bearer, they mean the morning star. And Jesus, Mary, and Satan all get called the morning star at different times. In Isaiah, he's the morning star until he's cast down, and then he's the fallen one, right? When Mary and Jesus are considered the morning star, they are... They are not fallen. Okay. I'm skipping some of these just because of time, because I'm rambling. 
church. Church comes from our word ecclesia. Ecclesia comes from the same root as that paraclete. It means to call out. So the proper term for a church is an assembly. So like the other day when we had the reading about, um, you know, call an assembly, gather the people, that's what the church is. It's the people gathered around their God. And that's a helpful reason, helpful to think. It's like church doesn't just mean stuffy institution. It means the people assembled to worship. With that is an interesting other word, our word for parish. Um, do you know where parish comes from? Parish comes from the, the, uh, a line, it's, it's 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. And uh, you can look at it if you want. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting little line. So the word for parish is paraoikos. When we think of a parish, we think of it as home, right? You know, this is my home. This is my parish. Nothing can be more settled than the Catholic parish. We have ethnic parishes, so you never leave because you were born Italian, so you'll be here for the rest of your life. You know, that's Philly for you. Um, but when you look at chapter 2, verse 11 of First Peter... He says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and sojourners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against the soul. Which word there was parishioner? Sojourners. In the Bible, the word that will eventually become the word for parish, a perioka, is literally the word for passing through, resident alien, non-official status, undocumented worker. It's the person who doesn't have citizenship. It's the person who's here for a while and will move on. It's actually what Jesus, Mary, and Joseph were in Egypt after the flight to Egypt. So it's funny. The word we think of for the most settled thing in the Catholic Church, the local parish, literally means don't settle down. You're not here forever. You're passing through. You're a sojourner. So that's kind of a fascinating thing that, like, huh, truly this world is not my home And yet, it's good to be with other refugees in the refugee camp, right? When we're here in our parish, it's good to have other people that speak our language, that know our customs, and that we can kind of empathize with when we're hurting. Also goes well with that image from Pope Francis about the field hospital, right? You know, so that we're in the refugee camp, in the field hospital, we're in the the transitional housing, if you will. Um, Gospel. Gospel is another interesting one. Um, we hear that just the other day, Jesus came preaching, the time is at hand, pre- preaching the gospel, repent and believe in the gospel. And, and you know that means good news. You've heard that a thousand times since second grade. Um, it also means proclamation announcement. I like proclamation because we so much turn gospel and good news into just everything in the Bible. It's all the gospel. And we do use that. We talk about, like, you know, we will be judged on how well we live out the gospel. But the idea that there's this, this acclamation or proclamation, start filling that idea up with everything else you learn. When you hear about the stuff of the Old Testament and the exile is going to be undone, that's part of the proclamation. When you hear that there's a new way to be human, as Wright was talking about at dinner, that's part of the proclamation. When you hear that there's a salvation that doesn't come from the world, like Caesar promises, there's a proclamation, which... This is also a slap in the face because the original gospels, the good news, the proclamations, were when the Romans would send out, hey, here's an update on what's happening in the, in the empire, and it's meant to make you think, oh, I'm safe. Caesar's taking care of me, which basically means Caesar's exploiting me and, you know, and using injustice and, and raw naked power, but I'm supposed to buy it because this is how I keep peace. So again, there's that subversive sense of he's challenging that, that empire there. I'm going to do... Three more. Flesh. 
you've probably heard this before. Um, oftentimes we think of flesh as meaning, okay, this is my flesh. I got lots of it up front right now. Um, and, uh, and then I've got my spirit, right? But, and we hear Paul dogging on the flesh, talking about, you know, how beware of the flesh. And the flesh leads to disobedience and stuff like that. And so that can lead people who aren't paying attention to think of it as a body-soul split, body bad, soul good. That's dualism. That's Gnosticism. That's a heresy. We don't believe that. The body is good. I am my body, right? I have a body and I have a soul. Sometimes people just think like, well, I am my soul, but I have it my body. I'm just this ghost in a machine until I die, and then I go to where I really want to be happy and stuff. No, I am my body. My body is me, along with my soul. But that's okay. Paul is not confused in this. When you look at Paul's writing, when he says flesh, the Greek word is sarks, when he says that, he's very clear that it's not just fleshy stuff. Sometimes we're like, oh, sins of the flesh, right? So like gluttony and lust and laziness and stuff like that. But when Paul names the things that come from the flesh, he also names very strongly at the top of the list pride and disobedience. Those are non-bodily things. Satan didn't have a body. What was his sin? Pride, right? You know, back when Adam and Eve had full control of their bodies, how did they sin? Disobedience, right? And so it's a good thing for us to realize that when we hear flesh, do not think soul good, body bad. Think, no, this flesh is his word to describe the fallen part of humanity. So just put that in, flesh equals fallen part of humanity or fallen side of humanity. We, in our terms, might call it concupiscence. Um, or our, our fallen nature, or whatever. Whatever makes me want to eat Twinkies, even though they would make me sick. Um, holy. The other day, Friday night, we talked about um, the holy, 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 and how it's the angels chanting. Do you guys know what holy literally means in Hebrew? The word is kadosh, and it means different. So the angels are literally saying, different, 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 Lord God of hosts. Or, you've probably heard this before, that in Hebrew, when you see something twice, it like doubles it, intensifies, and when you see three, it's the superlative. So, holy, holy, holy would maybe be translated as the holiest, or saying God is the differentest. The English teacher over there is frustrated by me saying differentest, right? <laughs> She's like, that's not a word. That's not a word, right? Um, so, no, so, but it's cool. It's that idea of like, what is God? He's holy. He's different. He's not like us. Jesus actually comes in part to show us that God can be like us. But in the Old Testament, like, God is God because he's not like the other gods. God is God because he's not like fallen humanity. God is God because he made the world. He's not part of the world. We're not pantheists. And so uh, that's helpful because, I mean, this it's not a picnic table. It's different. It's set apart. It's been consecrated, right? You don't drink Kool-Aid out of a chalice. It's a different kind of cup. It's holy. When we're called to be holy, the universal call to holiness of Vatican II, we're called to be different. That people should look at Christians and say, they're not like us, right? The famous line from Tertullian, ah, see how they love each other that the people of their day would sit and be like, those Christians act different, i.e., they act holy, right? We're not going to run around and play tag even after the monstrance is put away because this is a holy place. It's different. And finally, the last one that I'll do is love. You already know that there's different words for love. 
you already know that the, the special um, New Testament word for love is agape, or agapao is the verb. And you've, you've probably heard um, different reflections on that in, in different ways, that there's a special word for this sacrificial, unconditional love. It's not philia, which is the love of friends and of, also of things. Like, you can be a bibliophile, you love books, or an anglophile, you love all things English, right? So that's philia. It's not eros, where you get erotic, which is our, you know, our word for, like, human spousal love. Um, and it's not even the word uh, storge, which is the love of, like, family members, affection on a family level. It's this special thing that starts in God, right? That agape is the word we use when we talk about the father loves the son and the son loves the father, agape. When we talk about God so loved the world that he sent the son out, agape, John three sixteen. When we talk about when Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you, and then said his greater love has no one than to lay down his life for his friends, agape. Ponder that for a second, by the way. Think about how Jesus took them along for a ride. In the beginning, he just shows up and says, you've heard, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And they're like, okay. And then a little later, he says, love your neighbor as yourself. And you're like, okay, I love myself a lot. I guess I got to transfer that. Okay. And then he says, um, love one another as I have loved. And you're like, whoa, Jesus loves us a lot. Now I got to really love one another. And then like two minutes later at the Last Supper, he says, uh, greater love has no one than to lay down his life for his friends. Like, what? <laughs> I got on this train back and it was just, you know, don't hate your enemies. And now I got to die? Yeah, you got to die. It's part of the job. So, um, so it's cool to kind of reflect that that is the, the love coming down. And then what does Jesus say? Now that's the love you have for each other. And that becomes the word that we always see. How do the apostles love each other? agape. How do they invite other people to love God back? With the same agape. It's this cool image to, to, to have that it's literally God's own love. I cannot agape on my own. Abraham couldn't have agaped. Only because God does it and teaches us through Jesus can we then do that to other people. 